Sometimes when you look out and see a lot of people gone, it's kind of discouraging. Uh, today, <laughs> they heard I was preaching. Actually, uh, today it's really encouraging to see so many people missing because... Um, that didn't sound right, did it? It's nice to see so few people here tonight. What I mean by that is Tony took about 30, there are about 30 people in all who went to Houston, left yesterday morning at 7 o'clock, got there last night. I've heard some reports already about things. Um, about 24 of our youth group are going to sleep on beds and spent today getting a church building ready to give a VBS to children who are in the heart of inner city. When you think of the word inner city, it is every bit of this. Uh, and some of our children, some of our youth group are going to see just how blessed they are and just how challenging it is for some people to live a normal life. Uh, and they're going to meet some great kids and have great experiences. Uh, but not only are we missing people from our youth group who's, who are down doing that, we're also missing uh, Tanya Cole, Miranda, uh, David Hartman. They're helping at a church camp at Larrick Creek this week. Uh, and so if you're going to be missing people, to be missing people doing missions is very encouraging. So the empty pews are actually an encouragement tonight, believe it or not. Okay, I want to thank uh, Irvin for, I almost said Colleen, but she probably picked the songs. I want to thank Irvin for the songs he led tonight, because we're going to be talking about this issue of Scripture. Jim last week began a series of studies titled Hard Questions. There are some questions being asked by a number of different places today, a number of different groups. There's a popular atheism that's really hitting the shelves. You know when you're standing in Walmart and you see um, certain books about God and proving God doesn't believe, doesn't exist, and they're there in Walmart, you know that there's an issue out there afloat, and it needs to be kind of thought through. So some of the hard questions we're dealing with are questions that are bouncing up in media, and you're seeing all over the place. For instance, last week, Jim dealt with this question about, why does God, in the Old Testament, command his people to annihilate the Canaanites? And, and that issue, that concept, is thrown at people of faith, to say, what kind of God would do that? If you didn't get to hear Jim's lesson on that, I would encourage you to go find it. Uh, we'll have a tape of it. Um, Jim said some great things that are challenging, but I think very helpful in this. Now, some of these questions are not just questions being asked out there, but they're also questions we wonder about sometimes. They're difficult because we ourselves wonder, how does this work, or what does this mean, or can this be trusted? And so that brings us to our topic tonight. Um, can, is the Bible reliable? Can you trust your Bible? Because one of the big claims being made out there is this is just an old book that is uh, written by people who lived many years after the fact and copied by people who had agendas people who made mistakes, and what you're reading is full of mistakes, full of agendas, and it cannot be trusted. Well, is that true? And that claim is being thrown about in various different ways, and they're given various different reasons as to why you cannot trust your Bible. Now, let me just say a few things before we jump into some of these issues. Uh, one, these are legitimate questions, and legitimate challenges. Uh, I like 
It's, it's a Jim Baird image, but it's, you'll understand. Jim says we are not called to take our brain out and stab it when we become Christians. And that's the image of Christianity that sometimes, that we're just not intellectual people, we're not thinking people, and only fools believe something like the Bible. There are some legitimate questions. The second thing I'd like to point out, these are personal questions. Not everybody who asks these questions are people trying to deny the faith or walk away. They've got their own genuine concerns. And I think, as Jim said last week, how we answer them is just as important sometimes as what we answer them. You recall Peter in 1 Peter 3 said, Always be willing to give an answer to the reason of the hope that is in you, but to do it how? With meekness and fear. Not arrogance, not condescension, but meekness and fear. And then the third thing I, I want to say before we deal with some of this, the things Jim and I are talking about in this series and these questions we're dealing with, we do not pretend that some of the things we say and some of the answers we give are the end-all, be-all answers. I, I have, if all goes well and Urban doesn't jump up and start singing me out of the pulpit, the podium, um, I have about 40 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes, to deal with questions that reams and reams of paper have been spent dealing with and hours and hours of debate. We're not pretending to give you a silver, silver bullet answer that is, aha, no one has come up with this till now. What our purpose is, is to show our, there are some good reasons, some good things that we can say in response to these, these challenging and difficult questions. And there are a lot more things that can be said, and the, the issues are a lot deeper. We're not trying to solve it beyond a shadow of a doubt. What we're trying to say is we can be faithful, reasonable, thought, thoughtful people and have good answers, some basic beginning answers. So I know that as we go through some of this, somebody might say, yeah, but why didn't you mention this? Well, that's because I only have 30 minutes. <laughs> um, there are a lot more things, and I certainly want to encourage you, if this is a question or these are questions you're struggling with, or someone is asking you about, please see Jim or me, preferably Jim, and, and Jim will, will help you how best we can because these are legitimate questions. So here's where I want to start. Run back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 quickly, and then we'll start dealing with some of these questions. But I wanted to point out a few things. Deuteronomy 4 makes a pretty significant claim that I think is being attacked, or at least being doubted, when we question the validity of Scripture. And here it is. Moses is trying to get the children of Israel to understand just how significant it is that God communicates with us. I mean, think about it. All the deities of Egypt, they, there was the sun god, there, was, uh, uh, there, there were gods of the Nile, and all these gods. But what, what Moses is claiming, and when God comes to the people and he calls the people out, he is saying God didn't just call you and God doesn't just give you stuff. God has talked to you. God has communicated with you. And listen to what Moses says. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 7. For what other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this entire law that I am setting before you today? Moses says, do you realize God has brought you to this mountain? He brought you to Sinai. He spoke to you. He gave you his law. He gave you his word. It's written down. It's chiseled in stone. Do you realize how significant that is? That the God who created you 
would communicate with you. That's remarkable. I mean, think of this is scripture. This isn't just I thinks and I thoughts and once upon a time. This is God talking to his created beings. And if God communicates with us, can we trust it? Legitimate question. And so we get this text, this reading from Psalm 19 that Doug gave us just a moment ago. There are lots of places in the Old Testament that we could go to talk about this. But listen to Psalm 19. This is what the writer of Psalms is saying is God is so powerful and he has revealed himself. He revealed himself in nature, the heavens. Go look out at night and see the heavens. They, they're screaming about the glory of God. And then he moves from the natural things, creation and such, to the law, verse 7. And listen to what he says about the law. The law is perfect. It revives the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure. They, they rejoice the heart. They're right. The command of God is clear. They enlighten the eyes. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous. They're not just saying it's an interesting book. You ought to read it sometime. They're saying when God speaks, they are true, they are right, they will change your life, they are powerful. Sometimes sit down and read Psalm 119. Psalm 19, Psalm 119. Longest chapter in all the Bible. You know what it's about? There are eight verse sections. The guy sits down with the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. He sits down and he says, I'm going to write eight verses that begin with the letter Aleph, A. And all eight of these verses are going to be some statement or praise to the law and the writings and the word of God. And when he finishes eight verses with Aleph, he writes eight verses of Beit, or B in our English versions. And he writes... Eight verses extolling the praise of the precepts, the commands, the ordinances, the statues, the direction of God. The song we just sang, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Something like, I got that backwards. One of the two. That comes from Psalm 119. It's this praise and it's the statement of the word of God. And then, of course, we're all familiar with Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. People of God believe that God has spoken and what God has spoken is right and true and sure and just and profitable. That's our claim of Scripture. That's a very oversimplified version of it, but that's our claim of Scripture. But the crowds today are asking some hard questions about Scripture. And if we're not careful, we miss the nuance of what they're doing. If they can sweep God's communication out from under us, then we don't have anything to stand on, in theory. One of the most... Uh, one of the ones to make the biggest splash of recent is a book titled Misquoting Jesus, written by Bart Ehrman. Um, and Bart Ehrman makes this claim. He says, with the abundance of evidence, what can we say about the total number of variants, differences in our Bibles today? Well, scholars differ significantly in their estimates. Some say there are 200,000 variants known. Some say 
300,000, some say 400,000 or more. We do not know for sure because despite impressive developments in computer technology, no one has yet been able to count them all. Perhaps, as I indicated earlier, it is better simply to leave the matter in comparative terms. There are more variations or mistakes among our manuscripts of the Bible than there are total words in the New Testament. Wow! Now, I've met Bart Ehrman. I actually took a class with Bart Ehrman. He's a very smart, very funny, very learned guy. But if I can say this respectfully, he knows better than to write that. What he is saying is your Bible is based... He's not a believer, by the way. He used to be. He went off um, to Moody Bible Institute, then he graduated and went to Yale, and he lost his faith there. He says, there are manuscripts. Your Bible, your Bible is based upon manuscripts, old writings and old copies of Scripture. And did you know that there are over 400,000 mistakes in the manuscripts? And if there are 400,000 mistakes in the manuscripts, how can you trust what you're reading? Bart Ehrman went on TV, and he made this claim. People were shocked. There's one problem with that. Well, there are several problems with that. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, we have more manuscripts of our Bible than any other ancient document known to man. Did you realize that? If you want to study Plato, Plato is based, the information we have off of Plato, this um, uh, philosopher of the early times, if you want to study from Plato, then what you will find is about nine manuscripts, if you will, the earliest, the earliest of which was written 1,200 years after Plato lived. We have over 5,200 manuscripts of our New Testament. 5,200. And the earliest one goes back to about 30 years after Jesus' ascension. Nobody questions Plato's writings. Everybody seems to question the writings of the New Testament. Why is that? The preponderance, just from historical perspective, there is more reason to trust the manuscripts of our New Testament than virtually any other document of the first century or earlier. One fascinating thing, in 1945, there was a boy out, he was a sheep herder, a goat. He was looking for a lost goat. He picks up a rock, he throws it into a, a cave, and he hears something break. He walks in it, and he uncovers over 800 ancient manuscripts. You know them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. When they brought these scrolls out, it's a great, I'm surprised it's not a movie yet, a black market selling it here and governments trading it, people dying. When translators got their hands on some of these, it was remarkable. 200 of them had something to do with fragments or things in our Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, the book of Psalms and commentaries. And they were struck that the Dead Sea Scrolls took us a thousand years back in any manuscript we'd had, and there was an incredible amount of consistency. Now, there were differences, let's be intellectually honest, but the consistency was incredible. Well, Bart Ehrman comes along, and Bart Ehrman says, you know, there are over 400,000 mistakes in your Bible, and everybody says, throw it away, let's burn it, can't be a Christian. Let me do this. Uh, Sharon is, uh, Sharon, <laughs> I'm just going to go through all of our secretaries. Tammy is gone. 
she and, she and uh, what's her husband's name? Ryan. <laughs> Don't tell him that happened. Ryan, they're in Europe. And so when it came time to print the bulletin, I had to print the bulletin. I hate printing the bulletin. I'm no good at proofreading. I'm known for making mistakes. And many of you in your joyous heart of hearts like to point those out. I still love you. If I make a mistake on the original copy of the bulletin, and I put it through the copier, and I copy that mistake 250 times. We run about 250 bulletins every Sunday. How many mistakes have I made? One mistake. And I've made it 250 times. Thank you, Irvin. But it's one mistake. When Bart Ehrman says there are over 400,000 mistakes in your Bible, what he means is somewhere some copyist made a mistake and some other copyist copied that mistake. That's two mistakes. And then down the road, three copyists were using that manuscript and all three of them repeated that mistake. Now how many mistakes do we have? But if he can blow it up and say $400,000, then we can make media coverage and go on the nightly news with it. There are spelling errors in your Bible, manuscript-wise. But when, when scholars, critics of Scripture say there are all of these mistakes, you have to hear what they're saying. The more manuscripts you have, the more mistakes you're going to have. Is it better or worse to have manuscripts? Better. And there are families of manuscripts that scholars have traced back that come from this one, so they can trace a mistake in some cases. It's fantastic what they can do. But, but don't let people scare you with information like this that is twisting what's going on. There is no document better attested in its ancient history than Scripture. Just from a purely historical point of view. Well, the second thing they claim, Bart Ehrman also has said this, is not only are there all these mistakes, but there are egregious mistakes, such that if we, if we were honest with the text, it would change what the Bible says. People don't know this. For instance, open your Bible to John chapter 7. Now, hold on. This is a big secret that Bart Ehrman published, and everybody was shocked. John chapter 7 is this great story of the woman caught in adultery. You guys have read this, right? People bring this lady to Jesus. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Should we stone her or not? And Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. People, starting from the oldest to the youngest, threw down their stones and they walked away. Did you know? Did you know that's not in the Bible really? Did you know that most of those manuscripts don't even have that, that text in there? Well, here's the funny thing about that. Uh, Mr. Ehrman, a lot of critics are right about that. Some of our most noteworthy, trusted manuscripts do not contain this story. And scholars are confused. Very few of them put it in John. Some of them actually put it in Luke. Some of them have said, we're not sure where it belongs, but it sure sounds like an authentic story of Jesus. But let me point out two things. Number one, it's not a newsflash. 
Christians are intellectually honest about this. Now, anybody have a footnote in your Bible? Mine does, right here. The most ancient authorities lack, 753 through 811. Other authorities add the passage here after, and they give some other places. It's not like anyone's hiding this. We're being honest. And we're saying, look, we're not sure where this text belongs. Now, we could, we could argue whether it belongs here or not for other reasons in various ways. But here's a second point that's worth making. If you take this story out of your Bible, does it change anything about our view of God, Jesus, or salvation? No. And what you will find is there are a lot of texts. There are the end of Mark chapter 16, verse 9 through the end, is a notorious text where scholars have said, we're just not sure if this was part of Mark's original writing. Again, we can debate that, we can discuss that. This is the great text where Jesus says, um, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And then, uh, those who believe, you'll be able to handle snakes, drink poison, and all that. <laughs> and lots of scholars come along and say, we're not sure that's in there. And Bart Ehrman says, see, Christians, they don't know that that text isn't really in the Bible. Go to Mark 16, look at your footnote, and they're honest there too. But let's just say it's right, and that text doesn't belong there. Is there any doctrine, any faith statement, any theology that's thrown out the door if that text does not belong in there? No. You want to find teaching on baptism essential for salvation? You may not find it if that one's thrown out, but it's there in Acts 2.38. It's there in 1 Peter 3.21. It's all over your Bible. There are some texts in your Bibles that are questionable texts. But none of them, if removed, alters the theology and teaching of Scripture. None of them. And for, for scholars to come along and say, they're hiding this from you, and, and they know if this comes out, that Christian faith sinks under its own weight, is just not intellectually honest. What is intellectually honest is to say, you know what, our best manuscripts say, we're not sure about this but I can prove this doctrinal point, this theological point, by taking you to this text over here that there is no manuscript doubt about. It's remarkable. Your Bible doesn't hide that. They say, well, you, you can't necessarily trust your Bible because of that. Well, there is a third claim that people say, well, you can't trust your Bible because it's not consistent. It's not consistent. You ever notice Ephesians 2, verse 8? For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, James evidently didn't read Paul's writing in Ephesians because James says, you see then how a man is not justified by faith only, but by what? Works. James, don't you know you contradict Paul? You can't trust the Bible that can't get its theology straight. Or there's Matthew. Matthew's telling the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew says there was, there was an angel that came down and moved the stone. Mark says, eh, it was a young man. Luke and John say there were two. How do you get that story wrong? That's the heart of your belief. Was there one angel or two angels? Was it an angel or was it a young man? The Bible's not even consistent. 
Read the temptation stories. Matthew and Luke put them in totally different orders. Who's right? They say we can't trust our Bibles because it's, it's inconsistent. Well, this topic in and of itself is interesting. But let me just ask you two questions, or one question. Let's just say they all said the exact same thing about every case. Let's say we're in a trial, and we call witnesses. And the first witness tells you exactly what happened, where it happened, and they use this, this strange word. The second witness is called to, to affirm that, and they word for word repeat same strange words and everything. And then we call a third witness, and the third witness walks up, tells the exact same story using the exact same images, using the exact strange words, word for word the same. What would we say then? They're colluding on this thing. You can't trust them because they're exactly the same. Can you not have it both ways? The text of Scripture tells you stories from different perspectives, not altered theology. The salvation that Paul is writing about in Ephesians 2 is a salvation coming to know what God does in your life and how He works. You do not get there on your own. It's not by works. James is talking about people who are saved and they sit in a church pew and prop their feet up and say, I'm going to heaven. I don't have anything else to do. James says, you're not saved without a faith that expresses itself in works. And if you read Paul, he says the same thing too. Matthew isn't concerned with how many angels there are. Matthew is concerned with how that stone got moved. Mark says it was a young man. That's because the angel evidently looked like a young man. If you, if you consider the context, and you consider the theology, and you listen to what they're saying, and you understand they're not writing 21st century history. They're writing theological history. It changes things. Can we trust our Bible? You betcha. Inconsistent only if we read it with a preconceived notion. Some people claim that our Bible cannot be trusted because all the writers of Scripture were biased and therefore cannot be accepted as legitimate witnesses to the events. Matthew had a dog in the fight. So did Mark, Luke, and John. Paul really cared about this. And we all know that bias sometimes alters things. Some of you watch Fox News. Others of you watch CNN. Still others watch MSNBC. And some of you say they're all worthless <laughs> because they're all biased. <clears throat> How many historical books could you write if you rejected people with bias? You can't. Everybody has something at stake. There's not a witness in any court trial that is technically unbiased. So you call someone from the police department. If he's a true, honest police officer, he is concerned and he has a bias for justice. And he's going to tell the story because he does have a concern with what's right and what's wrong. 
And even if Paul and Mark and Matthew and John are biased in their beliefs, that does not by nature mean they're invalid witnesses. They don't try to hide their bias. They are clearly disciples of Jesus. That does not invalidate their testimony. Well, there's one more reason. Two more. Let me give you two more. And all of these could be their own class and their own sermon and their own nine-month series of studies. Some have said you cannot trust your Bible because there are other books out there that they just didn't want in your Bible. It's what we call the canon debate. And you hear this from time to time. There are other books. We call them in the Old Testament the Apocrypha. There are books, um, the Lost Gospels. You get the, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, um, all of these other books. And they say what most people don't understand is that there are other books out there that are Gospels. And they're right, they are. When I met Bart Ehrman, it's because I was taking a class on the Lost Gospels. And we read them. Here's something I noticed. Every one of those other Gospels out there presume a basic understanding of the story as told by our text we have. They're built on the assumption that that story, at the heart of that story, is something we're going to take and change. But they're still referencing the same story. And if you read these, they're interesting. The infancy gospel of Thomas presumes to tell stories of a younger Jesus. In one story, a child bumps into Jesus, and Jesus gets so angry that he strikes him dead. When Jesus' teacher annoys Jesus, he strikes her blind. There is the gospel of Peter in which three men come walking out of Jesus' tomb, followed by a large walking and talking cross. There is the story of Thomas, the gospel of Thomas, that concludes, Simon Peter said to him, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. And Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her a man, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. Does that sound like the same kind of stuff we read in our Bible? They're different books. They contain different messages. That does not by nature make them unvaluable, but it does mean they're on a different par. They're a different kind of literature. The last reason that we'll talk about briefly is that they say Scripture records events that are irrational. A dead man coming to life. A man walking on water. Now Jim, I've heard Jim talk a number of times on the believability of miracles. He does a fascinating job on that. But think of how many times people in your own life, and in your own life, you've made this statement. If I had not seen it with my own eyes, I would not have believed it. 
When I took this class with Bart Ehrman, he was a very smart, very educated man. We took this class, it was, Odo, it was at OU, my advisor came and said, hey Jeremy, they're teaching this class on the lost gospels, would you like to take it? It's with a guy named Bart Ehrman. I'd heard of that guy. And I took his class. We were told that this class was being given, it was not in any way trying to persuade someone to or for Christianity, just an interesting study of the materials. I was the only graduate student in the class, there were lots of other students in there. I tried to hide that I was a minister. <laughs> Not because I'm ashamed of that, but I didn't, by nature, want a target painted on my head. He started talking about the story of Saul of Tarsus and how Saul had become a Christian and really Christianity is the result of Saul of Tarsus. It's not Jesus, it's Paul and what he's done with it. During the breaks, we the students would talk, and there were people, there was a lady there whose husband was a Baptist preacher and kids who had grown up in various different religions who were honestly questioning their faith because of the things they were hearing. When Mr. Ehrman began telling the story of Saul of Tarsus, I raised my hand and I said, Mr. Ehrman, can you explain to me why anybody would give up a life of fame and fortune and they would throw it all down the drain to become a persecuted Christian with nothing in this earth to brag about. And his response was, I don't have a good answer for that. I do. Saul of Tarsus was walking down the road one day when he saw a bright light. It was the risen Lord. Only an evidence like that only an event like that could explain why someone would walk away from everything and give their life to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, our Bibles are reliable. Amen. If you took out our faith statement that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and just ask, are they historically accurate? Then by historical standards of historians today, you have to give weight to the evidence they contain. More manuscripts across more places, across different languages and different backgrounds. And it's a reliable document. Now I know there's no silver bullet in this tonight that you can walk up and say, aha, see, my preacher says you're wrong. But what I do want you to see, and what Jim and I are working in this series, is to help you understand there are smart people out there asking hard questions, and there are smart answers. You don't check in your faith and your intellectual honesty when you become a Christian. Do you realize the history of this book? Men and women have died preserving this book. If God is powerful enough to create the world and God is loving enough to communicate with us, don't you think he has it in him to preserve a book that will tell us his story? We are not saved because of the Bible. We are saved because the story the Bible tells. 
Jesus is the story of Scripture. And there is more than enough evidence that that was a real, legitimate story. Jim will deal with some of that in the weeks going forward. Open your history book and read John Wycliffe, William Tyndale. Did you know the first book ever printed on a movable type press was a Latin version of our Bible? And did you know when Bloody Mary began trying to return parts of Europe back to the Catholic Church, they would go into people's houses, murder them, and dip their Bibles in their blood. Think of that next time you pick up this book and you use it to prop up the corner of your coffee table. Or you throw it in the back window of your car and you come back a week later or two weeks later and it's all bent by the sun. And then think of Paul's words, all scripture are given by the inspiration of God. If you're not a Christian tonight, you will be saved not because of this book, but because the story contained in its pages. The story of a God who creates us and who is powerful enough and loving enough to communicate with us. And his words are sure and true and pure. And they will change your life. We invite you to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ tonight. While together we stand and sing.